go we're here go 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 the game if if you know you know (laughs) many people do (laughs) (laughs) i just mean it's been a it's been a topic of conversation in our very fun and cool discord which is for (laughs) which is for patrons only oh yeah doff of the cat yeah Yeah, that's right yeah we've been talking about go there's links to how to for it's merely it's a mere a measly couple bones but as little as two. Look, you're listening to, <laughs> as you must know, the Spine Crackers podcast, starring me, Gabe, and me, Matthew. And special guest, me, Paul. <laughs> special guest. <I'm> special guest. <laughs> Is that what yeah. I've been demoted to? The special guest? No. Featuring. I'll take it. Featuring. No. Well, it's like, yeah, Paul's the Greg Turkington. Is that <laughs> <laughs> guest every I'm time? I'm guest. I'm always the guest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm okay with that. No, 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 no. Three equal co-hosts. Uh, yeah. Talking about books, talking about life, you know? Right, inevitably. <laughs> what are we talking about today? I've... We're talking about The Glass Bees by Ernst Jünger. Oh, boy. <laughs> And why do you say that, Gabriel? Well, it might be Patreon-only content. I think it probably will be, actually, because I have uh, some talking points about it. But Junger was, uh, you know, arguably a Nazi, fought for Germany during both world wars in his yes. in his long 102-year life. Yes. And uh, somewhat of a controversial figure. Uh, equally controversial is Matt here our co-host who pick, just relentlessly picks nazi books for us to read i don't yeah, know so why is, but what, there's the fourth just, one i think this is like the fourth one yeah yeah i don't know it's just something that just draws me to the to the to the, to the sort of ideas <laughs> being genre. dealt with and just <laughs> the sort of uh, regal nature every time such such ideas are voiced by people involved i it's funny because like i literally do want to read um <laughs> the third, uh, that Roberto Bolaño book, The Third Reich. It's on the list. I know. It's you happening. Sure you do. I'm sorry. I don't. I don't know. Well, I mean, that's it. I wonder why Bolaño wrote about Nazis so much. That uh, is actually a better question a, to me. Like, why? That's. I, yeah, that's probably something to save for when we read that book. But yeah, because I'm a guest, I might. You know, I might just not show up for that episode. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Peacefully protest that yeah, one. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, so. Um, Matt, this was your choice, uh, as as already covered. Obviously, um, nineteen fifty seven originally published. So, what what what's the what's up? What's this book about? Why'd you pick it? Well, um, one of the uh, infamous unrecorded episodes was on uh, Ernst Younger's, I believe, last novel ever written, Humesville. Uh, that sounds right. I think we talked about it when we talked. Yeah. A lost uh, episode. Uh, and I'll, before I'm gonna, I, wait, I'm just going to say this right now: if anyone through any medium donates a thousand dollars to us, we will reread, make Paul reread, and re-record an episode on Youngsville. <laughs> easy, easy clap. And I'll probably die on camera during that discussion. And that price, <laughs> that price is also highly negotiable. <laughs> yeah, for a measly two hundred bones, we would might be able to do it. Uh, no, I, I chose this one because uh, it was actually the first one I had read. I've only read Yumesville and this. Um, and I was actually more drawn to it initially. So you've read this already. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, this is the second time I've read it. Uh, 
And I was initially drawn to it because it was a sci-fi book. Like, that's how it was um, kind of sold right. to me, anyway. And, like, kind of, like, uh, the very earliest discussions of nanobots and, and this kind of thing. So I, I got... Which is funny because when we uh, talked about uh, Nazi literature in the Americas, the other Bologna book we read, he talks a lot about, uh, you know, um, sci-fi being a kind of <laughs> gateway or whatever, or like, uh, mm-hmm. you know, somehow a realm in which people with certain uh, proclivities or, or uh, sympathies might uh, vent in a uh, in a kind of uh, clouded manner, but. Right. But yeah, I don't know. Uh, I guess you know, back in my younger days, uh, <laughs> uh, younger, he definitely was like described as controversial and like disallowed, and that might have been the draw, you know, initially. Spicy, to, edgy, ed- edgelord, edgelord stuff, online, yeah. you know, r slash lit kind of like uh, shit. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Th- th- I picked up this one um, because of the sci-fi thing, and I was just curious about Younger as this like kind of forbidden and very controversial literary figure. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think we'll probably talk a lot about, uh, and maybe, like I said, maybe we'll save some for the Patreon. Which, by the way, if you want this full episode, the the rest of it will be available on Patreon. We're still experimenting with our new format. I just want to be make sure everyone's clear on what's going on here. So. I'm sure we'll 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 talk about uh, Younger's fascism and or maybe fascism and or not fascism, and or his ge- or his genuine fascism and his like weird morphs through still believing that probably, but then like yeah, I mean he was 102 years old when he died. Like he had uh, many phases and he wrote right through that all of that. So uh, yeah, th- th- there's like this you can chart like a bizarre arc of development over that time well, which well is... and, and of course just like uh, you know not that this necessarily says anything definitive about his personal uh proclivities or beliefs but the interesting distinction of being banned both by hitler and by the allied powers after the war some of his work yeah yeah because i mean I, he rose to fame by writing a war memoir his world war one memoir he was a storm of steel yeah, he was a war hero. That was in the 20s, like 1920, I think. Is that a Game of Thrones book? <laughs> <laughs> it definitely could be. I feel like Game of Thrones might be doffing the cap ever so slightly. Well, uh, uh, so that was the one that Hitler liked, but it was some of his later work that that was banned. Yes, yeah. Hitler liked that because, you know, younger, you know, uh, fought in the first world war and was like very he got wounded like 14 fucking times like he he seemed kind of unkillable and he had this sort of mythos around him uh for doing all of that right um yeah so that kind of launched him to fame super early in the 19 yeah 1920 i believe and then uh the book we're reading now was published in 1957 um so what I found interesting, you know, right off the top about reading this was like, you could feel the kind of, I mean, the the, the lead character is this, I'll do the plot synopsis, right? The lead character is this like uh, ex-cavalryman in, you know, a alternative, I guess, future. It's not, it's not really the world we live in. It's, I think you know, that's, that's one of the most interesting aspects of the book is the, when does this book take place? Yeah, it's it's sort of unclear. He, Younger did this in Humesville as well a little bit, I think. Like, uh, you know, it, it's all every every sign points to very it very clearly being like post World War Two or like World War One. I, I would say actually. Yeah. Um, which it feels like so it feels like it's a continuation of his reckoning with things that he was uh already writing about after like in the midst of World War One. Um. But at the same time, there's like this kind of like. Well, wait, can, I, can I pause you right there, real quick? Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What, what what makes you say that this is a this that that this is more of a post World War One narrative than post World War Two when this was published, ten years after World War Two, and he fought in both. I feel like World War One was where, you know, he he was charged with, and I think, 
kind of with reason valorizing the experience of war and and whatnot. But I think that's the first moment that he engaged with dehumanizing murderous technology, mm. which which is I think kind like, of like a lot of writers who were engaged in sort of like that. That was kind of one of the whole impetus impetai for the the tradition of what we call literary modernism, right? Yes, yeah. Uh, this kind of rupture, and uh, it just feels more like a discussion with him, himself from from that initial like experience versus World War Two, which really feels like you know I, I get a slow burn of just the after effects of World War One, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Okay, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But yeah, this cavalryman is uh, you know. He he exists in a post world war uh, war world and he's just kind of like languishing. He's got a wife. Uh, he's not got a lot of money. He's kind of down on his luck and he's trying to string together jobs. And uh, so this uh, old friend of his, who's kind of a headhunter, um, recruits him to work for this new titan type of like titan of industry. Uh, an Italian toy maker, basically named Zapparoni. Which <laughs> <laughs> Tom Tur- I mean, we can't just come out of Italo Calvino and just write into this. It's I really know, rough. I know. <laughs> well, before the podcast, Gabe and I were talking about how, the, like, there's a little bit of Philip K. Dick naming vibes I got from this. <laughs> Definitely with Zapparini. Z- Zapparoni. Literally, like, and it's like it's like on, electric dude. pepperoni. I mean, it's just exactly yeah. I can't. It's yeah. Tough. I definitely, I was definitely like sap <laughs> <laughs> We yeah. just got, we we just got to get it out. Yeah. So that's the guy who's the main uh, guy. He is a he is kind of like a, a CEO and sort of overseer of uh, what is now this kind of massive operation that extends to all all parts of life. I think he primi- primarily sort of uh, succeeds as an entertainer. Anyway, uh, the main character is basically uh, the rest of the book. This next half of the book, he's uh, on a job interview to see if he'll be head of security for this sort of um, unorthodox position in this kind of unorthodox corporate environment. Uh, yeah, and and that's that's all I'll say. Yeah, I think that's that's it's a it's a uh, it's not a book that I would call like plot heavy. It's not particularly action packed, as it were, for like a sci fi novel of this type. It's digression. It's digression central. It's yeah, yeah, it's it's because it's all interspersed with the the, basically the only two events in the book are uh, Richard, who's the main character's name, meeting his friend. Whose name I forget. Do you do you guys remember? Twinnings. Twinnings. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And uh, talking, having this conversation about getting this job interview, him driving to the job interview, and then the job interview itself, and then everything else is is digressive, uh, either kind of um, you know sociological, philosophical musings on Richard's part, and or various sorts of flashbacks to the to the war years or or other parts of his life. Um, which you know narratively is is of course I think kind of interesting. Um, how did it strike y'all? Bum, I mean, bum, narratively bum. is kind of a loose term for for this style of writing. I mean, I wrote down in my notebook uh, meandering journalistic pacing because because yeah. the way he writes and it happened in Hume's will for me too is just like. There's not a lot of dialogue. It's all it's all Richard talking about past events in a very just in a way that I just can't seem to to jive with at all. It's like very flat, very dry. Um So yeah, I had really I had huge issues with just paying attention to this book honestly. I just, I just really can't get my head around this style of just kind of like ADHD writing about one thing, jumping from the next. It, it's like, it works for me in some books, but in this book I was just, it was a slog. Sorry. Sorry, Matt. Spoilers. I'm, I'm good. 
yeah, it, it it struck me as kind of like, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I've never read any Seabald, maybe sometime, but it struck me as what some people call kind of sort of Seabaldian, where it's just digression and memory and, you know, kind of these slow slowly progressing sense impressions that trigger another memory which trigger another digression and then you'll have like a half a page of the actual events unfolding in real time and then memory digression digression etc does that make sense yeah yeah and i know you have mixed feelings about seabald matt like stopped and started a lot and i remember reading one chapter like three quarters through the way through the book. And it, it opened up with a passage that I was like, this seems like it should have been the first paragraph of this book. I'll try to find it. But like, yeah, the, the way he jumps around just narratively, stylistically, just like confused me. And it just did not gra- like keep my attention at all. I think, uh, yeah, I feel like the... Uh the kind of initiatory like memoir style has stayed even in fiction for younger, as far as I can tell. Right. He's much more interested in, in probing his like impressions and memory and doing kind of, I suppose like philosophical musings on, on how things have changed over time, which makes sense for a guy, you know, who basically lived to be 102. Like, you know, like, uh, it, it feels very much like, like almost like, <laughs> yeah, a person, like most, I guess, writers from the modern period, you know, how how to uh, how to cope with with what has occurred and like, therefore, you know, memory and the past uh, factor in heavily, and how to square that with a present that uh, seems to you know kind of demean or undermine or flat out reject prior values prior systems of belief prior worldviews yeah which i which i think is sort of where the inevitable um discussion of of younger's kind of political bent has has to come in right because there's um a lot of sort of i don't want to say romanticizing the past per se because a lot of the memories that Richard has of the war and so on are, are certainly traumatic. Right. Uh, and he saw some fucking shit. Uh, yeah. Uh, but there's also a deep sort of romance to it. I think in the way he describes being in the battlefield and, and specifically the way that he, it looks at the war, the way that, that, that war and the machinery and technology of war has progressed to where because you know sort of what what he did before coming to to Zapparoni who who, <laughs> who yeah who I want to talk about in, in a minute but what he was basically like a um like a consultant on like tank building projects he's a tank inspector yeah he's a tank inspector right exactly and so there's a lot of there's this weird tension between uh his sort of romance of the 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 you know the past and sort of skepticism of what Zabaroni is doing with this all of this trauma that he saw. You know, his main thing, like you said, Matt, he's a cavalryman, and he he sort of talks up a, a lot the kind of romance of the cavalry charging down the hill into battle on the horses, right. and 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 how the, and, and contrasts that negatively with just all these dudes in a fucking sweaty tank hole, just like sitting there, yeah. and and it being this like faceless kind of um, you know killing at a distance right which i which i think just one of the many ways in which this book i think is like deeply prophetic which to me mirrored uh, a lot of the discussions that have been going on about uh, like drone drone killing and stuff like that yeah technology has definitely just continued in that trend of depersonalizing and distancing people from (laughs) from what they're doing in the realm of war and fucking killing people but uh yeah i I think uh, the the thing about the like cavalry, which initially I was just like, yeah, it's just some like old old guy now, kind of grumbling about how things used to be like honorable and beautiful. But I, I uh, you know, as the novel went on, I was like, 
I feel like the horses are supposed to be just sort of also a little bit like, yeah, they're replaced by tanks. And now I'm talking, it's not very like subtle. He's like, now I'm talking about how uh, Zapparoni uh, is making movies using automatons and they're better than people. And so if you think horses can just disappear like that, you know, in the, in a flash uh, because they're useless uh, to a kind of inhuman machine logic, just just wait and see what happens to people. Right. And, and I think that, uh, you know, the, we should probably talk about the figure of Zapparoni a little bit here, too, because he's he's he's, <laughs> he's bit, Italian. He's Italian. <laughs> First of all. Yeah. If you couldn't tell. <laughs> but he, he, he's like this weird he's like this weird fusion of, uh, you know, Walt Disney and Elon Musk and Willy Wonka. Yeah. You know, he's the, the, the this classic sort of mysterious <laughs> and <the> pizza pie. <laughs> That's right. And Papa John and Geppetto. <laughs> and Papa John. Ge- Wait, Geppetto might actually be a, a real thing, actually. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, like we've been talking about, he has these sort of insanely intricate and like detailed, uh, you know, autom- automata that are that mimic humans and um there's a there's a lot of like really prophetic and creepy details in the book to the point that like there'll be the you know zapparoni will make a movie with these automata and people viewing the movie will fall in love with them and write them love letters and basically like start stalking them i highlighted that segment oh my god just it's just weird weebs and like uh (laughs) deviant art fucking you know rule 32 people totally (laughs) he he basically predicted the waifu uh like culture uh which is just mind-boggling well i liked what i liked about that segment was like uh you know is the whatever that poor like suicidal kid who is like she's she's not real uh I, I what i liked also was like the like conclusion of that which was like zapperoni works apologizing to that kid for his sort of uh, delusion <coughs> but also saying like you know she's she could be built that way for you and just like doing sex doll <laughs> nods at the cap too like yeah look. everything everything is a new market yeah paul what do you could. think about zapperoni I think your description of him is correct, though. Just kind of like this Elon Musk type dude. But uh, my my view on Zapparoni was always like overshadowed by Richard, the narrator's just like almost weird fascination with him. Like the most of the book is just him talking about Zapparoni, and it, that alone kind of weirded me out. Like, what is this guy's angle? Does he like? Is he just obsessed with him? Like, why is he so fascinated with this guy's career? I mean, I know why, but it's just like it was kind of disturbing in a way just to have this this character care so much about this dude. I don't I, know if you guys got any of that kind of feeling, but it was just like kind of off-putting the whole time for me. Well, I, I guess you're supposed to sort of... I agree that like maybe it wasn't like rendered as well to have you like fully buy in on that, but he's, I, I, I get the impression he's supposed to be like... Imagine if you just got to meet someone of the stature of Musk randomly. But there, there's also a, uh, a segment where he's talking about, I, I think it's a different guy, but he's talking about this other guy and how much of a genius he is and how good he was in school and how he, like everything came easy to him. Was that was he talking about Zapparoni there? No. Or some other guy? He was talking about yeah, another a student. Dude, right? Yeah. Yeah, it just, I don't know. His, his like... The psychological angle I felt from him was just like this weird guy, Richard, just being obsessed with other dudes and how smart and cool they were. <laughs> and it was weird. It was just really weird to me. Like, why are you writing about this? Well, and I, mean, I, I kind it, of had the same feeling in Humeswell, too. I think there's an obsession of like a, a big figure in Humeswell as well, just like a, a more a smarter, more successful guy, and this narrator is just, like, obsessed with him. Well, I think, uh, you know, this is something that's worth pointing out about about Junger, at least so far in what I've read, is that, uh, like Paul was sort of saying, there is certainly a kind of great man-ism in his writing. In in Hubesville, it's the Condor and some of the these Condor, other yeah. some of these other figures 
here it's Zapparone, but but here I think it's a, a, also a little bit more interesting because, like you were saying, Paul, psychologically, there's a dimension to Richard in terms of his fascination with someone like Zapparone because, of course, the other major kind of male figure in his life and his influence is his military commander from the war, uh, Monteron, Mon- Monter- Mon- or Monte, yeah, whatever. Monteron, yeah. Yeah, Monteron. And, um, I think there's there's a pretty clear there there's there's clear distinctions between the two of them. Monterone is this like kind of taskmaster, very old school, very uh, you know band of brothers, like military hierarchy, and Zapparoni is kind of this you know hashtag disrupt like <laughs> like you know e- Elon Musk like innovation figure. But right. they do overlap in some ways in the sense that Zapparoni, like a lot of these fucking guys even today lives on a compound entirely separated off from his own technology no phone lines no anything so he sort of is rejecting the world that he's helping create in his own kind of day-to-day life he's got a count he's got a compound it yeah it's it's literally it's literally a fucking facebook or google campus it's it's fucking eerie the way it's described yeah right and he's got you know i think probably the most likely figure that Younger is is riffing off of with Zapparoni has to be Disney, right? Like it has to be Disney at that point. Like, I think, yeah, I think from that time in history, it, there's no there's no other reference. Because Disney had borderline bi- diabolical designs on uh, the world's development as well, you know, and like you know, you have your fucking Imagineers, like Dis- these people. Di- Disney <laughs> Disney was a utopian. Yeah, you know? he was he was talking yeah, to he fucking was Nixon to and. A, uh... <laughs> At one point, he wanted. I think he wanted Epcot to be like an actual city, a utopian city. Yes, that was the uh, the initial uh, uh, goal for that. Uh, D- Disney was ball. was on some fully automated luxury gay space communism shit. <laughs> he was with no Jews. Yeah. 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 Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So yeah, Zepperoni is arguably kind of a an, an exaggerated. No, Disney was evil in his own way. Zapparoni, I think, is a sort of an arguably exaggerated car- caricature. You know, being even more evil. Uh, well, he's 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 already accomplished in this alternative world what Disney right. obviously like wished he could ever do, and we still can't do. You know, right? Um, and, and so we should probably talk about the rest of the job interview because right. that's a big you know plot point and 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 a way to underscore. Zapparoni's kind of nefariousness, I, I suppose. So basically, you know, Richard does this job interview. It's going kind of weirdly, and Zapparoni is just like, you know, I have to take this phone call or something, or I have to leave for some reason, right? And he's like, go wander around the garden. And Richard is wandering around the garden of this huge estate on this compound, and he sees these glass bees hovering around, and they're all, you know, like these tiny little intricate machines. And he becomes kind of transfixed by them, goes through these various reveries of memory, which you know we'll talk about in more detail later, maybe. Um, and then he sees what what appears to be a severed human ear uh, on, a, on a like on the shore of a little pond, right? Yeah. And he starts going through this like, what the fuck is this? And he's like, oh, ho! It's like blue velvet. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, oh shit. <laughs> This was cute until now. Right. And it becomes a sort of like a, like a test almost, right? Is that how you guys read it? Yeah. Like you go through a lot of different conceptions of what the fuck that means and whether or not it's real. And it does, yeah, it, it seems like a sort of test of metal to this guy. Yeah, and it was <clears throat> for me. It was one of the my favorite passages. I was seeing if I underlined it, but I didn't. But it was like a rare instance where I was like, "Oh, I like this writing." No spoilers on my score, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is it gonna be bad, Paul? <laughs> yes, yes. But then, of course, it's like you know, you get this internal process within Richard where he's like, "Oh, okay, well." It can't, it can't be real. It's it, 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 or maybe it's real, but then he winds up thinking, oh, well, well, no, it's probably just a facsimile that Zapparoni put here to freak me out and see what I would do. Should I go pick it up? Should I run back and tell somebody? Should I, you know? And he goes through this this sort of mental spiral 
of how to handle seeing this thing that that he's not sure is real or not which of course is a sort of commentary on the sort of uh, creeping unreality of these machines in general right right the uncanny (laughs) Yeah, yeah exactly also i got the impression that like um they potentially were real in a way like I definitely got like uh, they dipped their toe a little bit. I was like, I remember uh, highlighting something about the ears. Like I remember at at one point, like by the time Richard's like, they they're obviously they're they're not real, and then he sees a fly land on one of them, and he's like, oh, Ugh. I have this passage underlined. Oh, do I it, do it up. But just before you read it, Paul, and we should say ultimately they are not real. They're they're relics of one of Zapparoni's like disgruntled kind of uh, uh, imagineers, right? Who who's, right. Whose specialty was mm-hmm. designing ears. Yeah. So this is like right when uh, the, the big blue fly lands on the ear. <coughs> True, now I saw something that took me aback and again sickened, sickened me. A big blue fly descending on one of these shapes. A fly like those one... A fly like those one used to see around my butcher shops. But although unpleasant, the sight did not shake my confidence. If I had judged Zapparoni rightly, which I did not in the least pretend to do, this move of his, these ears, could only be artificial. Heads or tails, Zapparoni or King of Dahomey. <laughs> I underlined that too. Yeah, I, I didn't know what King that was. Yeah, was so that was fucking a, funny. That was a weird... <laughs> <laughs> He's spitting Zapparoni, verse at King this point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what, what is this, Don DeLillo? <laughs> <laughs> Damn, what was that rapper's name in that fucking book? Oh, I for, I fucking forget. It was something Fez. It was Brother Fez. Brother Fez. I was yeah. about to say Brother DJ Fez. Dow Jones. Yeah, uh, throwback. Whoa, shoutouts. <laughs> yeah, it could have been. Um, well, so what? I mean, what? 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 What do you make of this whole this whole scene with the ear? He goes through this process with the ear. He, you know, ultimately, ultimately, Richard kind of has a break, and he does. Uh, grab what is it? A golf club or a tennis racket? Golf club, yeah. And he just and, and he smacks, you know, destroys one of the automatons. And Zapparoni kind of comes out, and he's like, you know, a classic, just uh, a mysterious rich guy, like a nonchalant, like, oh well, you know, at least you didn't get one of the good ones or something like that, or right, one, of the, one yeah. of the complicated ones. And uh, you know, he's like, well, uh, yeah, you're not getting this job, but um, maybe I got something else for you. Yeah, he's like, you freaked out, you shit the bed, you're not getting the job. <laughs> right, right, right. But he gets a job, and he gets paid in advance. And, and the job he gets is one of the weirdest aspects of the text to me. Uh, because like It hints at, like, a sequel, even. It does, yes. Because the job that he gets, and we get a very, very brief, like, just a couple pages describing the job, and we're left, you know, hanging about whether or not Richard like rejects taking it or leaves or, or, or what, but the job he gets is basically like an internal, like corporate judge be- yeah. uh, between like uh, adjudicating between disagreements of the Zapparoni employee base, which is, which are apparently like constantly fighting, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, he, he, he's like an ombudsman, I guess would be the corporate term, right? Yeah, um, right. I think that's I think that's the right term, and uh, that's kind of where the story ends. Like Richard gets this corporate ombudsman job, and you know he talks a little bit about how Zapparoni's because you know the big thing about Zapparoni is he only hires you know genius artists, and it was it was very. I mean, again, I've talked already a couple times about the ways in which this book is predictive of a lot of shit in like like really fucking specific and, and, and eerie ways, but down to the kind of like open, open corporate structure where there's no in time, there's no out time. People can show up whenever they want, work however long they want, and then, you know, leave. And the idea being that these people are all motivated, they're all smart, and uh, that's the, the best way to get the most out of them. But, of course, as Zapparoni says, that leads to a lot of disagreement. People have artistic attachment to what they make. Right. And there's a lot of drama between the employees. 
And so Richard becomes the the sort of adjudicator in those disagreements. Right. And Richard, you know, he he's sort of characterized through the whole thing and, and, and I think by his memories as a kind of like waffler sort of he describes himself as defeatist like he's he's somebody who who really can't like bring himself to be committed one way or another to to you know causes or whatever um yeah so it feels like a failing and it's kind of why he also ends up failing the job interview his the first question is i forget what it's about but it's like something about the military like should uh like should a certain battalion have like raised a white flag of surrender so yeah so it's this complicated hypothetical right where zapperoni is constructing it's like people rushing at like a set of it's like one one army rushing a set of of kind of uh, uh what are they called like not reinforcements but um you know bunkers, bunkers so, yeah sort of bunkers type thing and one bunker kind of realizes that the battle's lost, they check the numbers, they don't have ammunition or whatever, and the, the one bunker raises a white flag, but the other one doesn't. And then they the, the army continues charging towards the other bunker. And it's sort of like this, you know, almost like a moral thought experiment about, like, what is the correct thing to it's do It's like a here. trolley problem or something. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Uh, and And then Richard's like... Yeah, okay, like, that's nice and clean, that's a nice, clean hypothetical, but, like, it didn't go down like that, like, I was actually in there, and, like, there was a lot of, like, internal debate, and it wasn't, like, cowardice versus bravery, it was kind of more of, like, this, you know, uh, unforeseen, blah, 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 and in that hedging kind of reveals him, himself as not the... The, the waffler. He's not going to be the muscle for Zapparoni, like he was... I think supposed to that was the original opening like he's not going to be the guy that just goes and unquestioningly does uh potentially violent shit for his apparoni right and I think it's interesting because the way it's written it it feels sort of like a failure that Richard doesn't get the original job because you know the whole time he's like I got my wife and you know uh, I got people to take care of and his wife who which I think is a really who I think is a really interesting character is we, we never actually meet her, but she's written in this way where she's like uh, overly, like effusively praising Richard for basically nothing. It, it's, it's the, he, he's, yeah. and he's deeply insecure about it because he's just like, I'm a shitlord, like I suck, I'm doing nothing <laughs> with my life. And she's like, You're the best, I fucking love you. <laughs> yeah. Wow, you're amazing. Yeah, every time he does anything. Yeah. But I also wonder if the way that that scene isn't written is is sort of like I don't know it feels it feels um, conflicted about how Richard actually is because on the one hand I found myself weirdly rooting like yeah get the job dude get the fucking job and then on the other hand you know the way you just described it Matt it's sort of like shows a level of intellectual kind of subtleness you know subtlety wow subtleness subtleness it's always subtlety it's not yeah yeah uh uh, in terms of thinking (laughs) about these issues to the point where yeah he's never going to be just the the brute uh kind of enforcer that um his friend maybe kind of originally recommended him to be which i which i think is also interesting in terms of like the way um and maybe this is something we can put aside for the the longer discussion but like, I, I, it made me think a lot about the way that we look at veterans in our society in terms of what jobs they tend to get hired for and and where, you know, how we kind of view what they're able to do uh, uh, post uh, experiences in wartime. You know, it's like you see all these things where they get hired by BlackRock or they get hired by, you know, some private, you know, security firm or whatever. That's kind of like the, the cultural yeah. discourse. And Richard sort of is 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 bucking that trend as a character sort of but also like you know um yeah his description of a lot of his friends was that like he he, he's very like subtle about it and doesn't really say anything too loudly but it's like yeah all my uh all my war buddies they're doing weird shady shit true true (laughs) like so yeah he's he's definitely an outlier yeah and even Twinnings, right, he just found something with more of a veneer where he's not really directly getting his hands dirty. 
but he's he's just a sort of middleman to get mercenaries essentially for people. Yep. Like, it seems like. Yeah, that's kind of that's what twining seems. Yeah, and at the beginning of the book, Richard makes a big deal out of like, this is basically the least like like violent and morally objectionable job that this guy could possibly get me. Right, because he's entertaining almost at one point when he's sort of like in his head, he's like, I'm not. I'm not taking the Zapperoni job. It's too weird. Like Zapperoni's weird. There's ears all over the place here. That's not normal. Uh, we don't know where that other guy went that disappeared who used to work for Zapperoni. Um, he's, I don't remember this, Paul, but he's like, uh, he's like, I'll just, you know what? I'll just go back to Twinnings or whatever. He'll give me a job uh, running a poker room and I'll just see scumbags uh illegally you know making deals and being in this poker room if people insult me i'll just take it i don't care like it's better than this like weird thing that where i don't really know where i stand yeah yeah i don't know i i think i was having trouble like even distinguish distinguishing why the uh connection between like a zapperoni like figure like what does he even have to do with like like narratively, what does he even have to do with this kind of veteran group of people? <laughs> I well, okay, like, I think he, that was it because like he was like a spawn of post-war life. I don't know, he, I like never the, really hit with me. I think the connection, which you're right, like in the novel itself, is maybe not as like uh, I don't know in your face. Is just that like. Um, the first like real human to technology smashing together happens on a battlefield and then yeah yeah you know you, you like so our our, our soldiers are uh, the people who kind of like face the repercussion because and i think this is very important the fact that zapperoni is like an entertainer disney like guy who makes like the world's most addictively entertaining movies with automatons and the and the like connection between that between entertainment and like war like zapperoni makes things for both situations right uh is is probably one of the most prophetic aspects of it for me where he's like you know you got richards who's like He's seeing the kind of brute he's he's kind of brutally collided with technology and it's sort of like at its most overtly violent. And now he's in this world where that's true and you, you don't get these whatever, these, you know, somewhat romanticized uh noble knight riding into the battlefield kind of situations. And now you have a new type of person emerging, which is like Zapperoni, where it's like He's doing entertainments with the technology um, because there's, you know, I forget what there is. There's some sort of like uh, genesis of tech where it's like, you know, it's like the Internet or whatever. It's it's a military it's it has a military application that becomes an entertainment, which in and of itself, like everything, basically. Yeah. Which is in and of itself is there to like embroil people in ultimately military aims you know or whatever it's sort of a feedback loop and that's what i think richards is having like a tough time dealing with basically as somebody who you know is in a sort of alternative reality analog to post the post world war one and two world what do you say paul yeah like sort of like the pain of all of these veterans is just being like manifested in and entertainment and flying bees weird blue flies yeah you know marvel partner partnering with like whatever military and like you know fucking michael bay being drone getting getting the yeah getting brand new um so they can film like the hulk (laughs) yeah where the hulk can punch (laughs) the newest the newest military like plane that they had developed you know like this kind of thing well it is it's like it's like the (laughs) it's like the number you know uh, the top two customers of for fucking Raytheon or the United States government and Marvel. You right. know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's like that mixed with like Pixar, like hyper addictive, treacly, like 
uh, animated beings designed mathematically to be the most emotionally affecting and appealing so that people want to fuck the fox from Zootopia. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's all... I mean... I, <laughs> I mean, it's all kind of hinted at and gestured at in here, which was what was <laughs> impressive to me. And I did... Wood? Is that what you're about to say? I meant the rabbit, but you... Okay. Wood. I was just, <laughs> uh, I, I was just saying, unless, I mean, you know what I mean? I'm going to look this person up. Um, Who? It's the rabbit you're looking it's for. It's the rabbit. You'll... Or the fox. I think Matt, was talking, Matt was talking about the, the rabbit, though. Um, <clears throat> Paul. But uh, I do I, 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 I do want to read the... Uh... <laughs> I want to see it. <laughs> All right. Well, Paul, while, while Paul looks that up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a passage about... you know Google image search graphic Zootopia pornography. Don't. Well, you can. Okay. So... Slash DeviantArt. Mm-hmm. While Paul looks that up and we wait uh, with bated breath for his uh, verdict on how hot the characters from Zootopia are. I can't are. find it. I can't okay. find it. It's like I'm getting this weird Banksy rabbits. No, You're not good no, at the no, internet no. if you can't find it. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Uh, <laughs> we'll figure it out on the Patreon segment. Yeah. Um, so this is this is from page uh, 155 to 156. And I feel like this is uh, kind of emblematic of Younger's attitude towards technology in general, or at least the attitude that's evinced in this book. <clears throat> It's a little long, but you need only stand in front of beggars collected outside a railway station to see that in our midst other rules prevail. We have made progress since Larry and this, that surgeon of the Napoleonic Wars, and not only in surgery. It's an optical illusion to attribute these injuries to accident. Actually, accidents are the result of injuries that took place long ago in the embryo of our world. And the increase in amputations is one of the indications of the triumph of a dissecting mentality. The loss occurred before it was visibly taken into account. The shot was fired long ago, and when it later appears in the guise of scientific progress, though it be on the moon, a hole is inevitable. Human perfection and technical perfection are incompatible. If we strive for one, we must sacrifice the other. There is, in any case, a parting of the ways. Whoever realizes this will do cleaner work one way or the other. Technical perfection strives towards the calculable, human perfection towards the incalculable. Perfect mechanisms around which, therefore, stands an uncanny but fascinating halo of brilliance evoke both fear and a titanic pride which will be humbled not by insight but only by catastrophe. The fear and enthusiasm we experience at the sight of, a, of perfect mechanisms are an exact contrast to the happiness we feel at the sight of a perfect work of art. We sense an attack on our integrity, on our wholeness. That arms and legs are lost or harmed is not yet the greatest danger. And I feel like that's, uh, you know, kind of sums up Jünger's attitude about technological development in, in, in all of its sort of, you know, ambivalence and, um, yeah. you know, it, it, it's not purely negative. And he sort of says, even in that passage, like you can you can kind of pick one or the other, but you can't do both. Right. Like you can either kind of emphasize the the, the technology and the sort of perfection of um, you know, I'm searching for the word, but 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 just this, the kind of clean, inhuman technicality of these mechanisms and these these automata that he's talking about in this book, or you can embrace the kind of messy, uh, but but arguably more authentic humanness of you know art, classical art or music or whatever, and that you know spicy take potentially. Yeah. So I, mean, I don't really see why you'd have to choose one or the other. I don't really understand like what his rationale is. Well, it's the sort of it's the sort of like to me it's the sort of like interminable question of you know what is it about art that makes it good and beautiful, right? Is it the human element? I mean, we had this conversation. We were having this conversation briefly on the Discord the other day about uh which you can uh get access to by subscribing to spinecrackers patreon for two bones a month oh no 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 you can wait yeah 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 you can get yeah, this discord right. for two yeah. bones yeah, <laughs> yeah it's two bones right. dude what literally like literally <laughs> just like buy one less fucking candy bar um you fat idiot we were thinking no you, <laughs> you sexy beautiful listener whoops um but we were talking about like, you know, imagine a world where a novel that we would otherwise evaluate as like beautiful or important and you read it and you loved it and you cried and you, it affected you deeply. And then you later found out, found out that it was written by an AI, right? Would that change your 
view of it. Now, we're not going to answer that question in the next 10 minutes. We're going to answer it in the hour and a half for the patrons. <laughs> but I think that's what Younger is getting at a little bit. Through through his his background and thinking specifically about war, you know, and I think that's where it gets tough, you know, and that's where people get hung up because war is never beautiful in the way that classical art is or whatever. War is never. And yet Younger writes about it as if it was beautiful and that there's a similar disanalogy between the AI novel and Moby Dick as there is between the 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 tanks and the drones and you know cavalry riding down a hill yeah my impression was like and this is just for younger like again i have not read storm of steel or on pain or any of these other things uh but like yeah he has a he has a romanticization of pain and self-sacrifice and like putting oneself through the extremes and those are (coughs) things that war offers like a young man, you know, to be forged in this, you know, kind of furnace of uh, life and death struggle, which which brings you closer to all other things because those are like the fundamentals of existence or something like that, right? Um, so I, and and this is this is based off of like later on when we were at Humesville and just kind of like what I know about his kind of thought afterwards that, uh, you know, war seems to be the most like kind of human and individualistic maybe thing. And I, you know, I think what he dislikes about war uh, and what got him in trouble later on in all this was like authority and hierarchy uh, a little bit. And uh, that being more and more given over to the demands of machinery as like something that then kind of dictated the outcomes of war and like the, the what was going on within it, you know, it was more like servicing machines to do the work for you. Um, so, and you know, I don't know, maybe something like that colored his view moving forward. Well, speaking of the demands of machinery, we are mm, uh, the clock about uh, 10 minutes away from the hour, which is our artificial mechanistic cutoff for uh, <laughs> the, the public version of this episode. Yeah. Sorry. So uh, let's, we're going to amputate, uh, are talking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which means. Barely recognizable. You're a wizard, Harry. <laughs> <laughs> You're a fascist, Harry. <laughs> he did become one. Uh, True. Uh, welcome to We Literally Just Read Another Book. So let us talk put about, him in a house. Talk about Richard. Harry. We're talking about Harry Potter. <laughs> we're talking about Harry Potter. Harry HP. So this is the segment of the show where we put all of the characters, or at least the most you know relevant ones that we get enough information about from the book that we just read, into their respective Harry Potter houses. Who we got today? We're talking about, uh, we'll do, I think, Zabaroni, right, Richard? Mm-hmm. And yep. uh, I feel like we get enough information about, uh, what's his name, Matt? M- M- Monteron? Monteron, yeah. No, I don't know about the wife. Oh, okay. I don't know. Do we get enough info about her? I feel like she's sketched. And the only information we get about her is in, in Richard's own kind of, like, insecure brain. You know yeah, what I she's, mean? Yeah, she's more about Richard than she is a person. In the yeah, book. yeah, exactly. All right, so let's start with Monteron. She's an artificial reflection. True. Yeah, and he's yeah he's definitely it's Blade Runner twenty forty nine yeah. yeah. Mon- Let's talk about Monteron. Is that it? Mont? What is it? Yeah, I think so. Mont Mon- Whatever. I feel Monterey like you're trying Jack. way too hard. Monterey. Yeah. Monterey. I love California. I love California. <laughs> Dude, SoCal. Uh, he. I don't know. Uh. I feel like he's just a classic uh, Slytherin. It's all tradition. It's all, but I mean, there's a lot of weird things in him, in him, which in the sense that like, you know, he's clearly like a, 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 you know, bravery and never leave a man behind. There's a, you know, a flashback scene where I was going to say Pufflepuff. um, So yeah, yeah, it's a little bit of a Hufflepuff thing. Loyalty. But it's also, but all of his other, I guess this is my, my defense for the Slytherin. All of his other commitments 
are under the auspices of a larger commitment, which is to like military tradition. Sure, but I still think I think that commitment is that a still makes vibe him, or is that a I think yeah, it's still awful yeah, yeah. puff. Why? Yeah. What? Well, because Slytherin, extreme loyalty to country and guns. How is that? I don't know. I, 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 I'm citing more I, with Hufflepuff. Like an overriding and overwhelming loyalty that informs all their decisions? Yeah. I know, but it's but it's about where that loyalty comes from for me, I guess is what I'm saying. And that loyalty to me comes from a, a overriding loyalty to tradition. So I, it's not clear to me that Monteron, you know, uh, independently would arrive at the same conclusions that he does outside of his role in the military hierarchy, which to me is a Slytherin vibe. But, I mean, I thought the ambition aspect of a Slytherin shifted. I mean, obviously there's the Death Eaters and they're loyal to, they're loyal to like, for instance, Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, uh. But you also have Dumbledore's army. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of different... True types of people that can get involved in that and uh i don't know the uh, maybe you're right but I, I he seems more on the wholesome end and the less ambitious end of 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 a loyalty i'm i'm just going to stamp my feet and be wrong and say slytherin okay okay you're objectively we'll wrong about <laughs> fake houses okay let's talk about uh the uh Arguably main character, Zapparoni. Slytherin. I think he's got to be a Slytherin. Yeah. Yeah. The man doesn't get a lot of speaking parts. He doesn't say a whole lot. uh, But his whole Google-ass campus fucking prison slash fun zone that he exists in is deeply, deeply weird, and uh, I'm he su- is so <laughs> ambitious. I'm surprised fucking Junger didn't write him as, like, bouncing around on an exercise ball with handles. <laughs> yeah, I know, dude. Just something, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he's a fucking Slytherin. Yeah. That's he's dominating the world, and he loves it. One of the easiest slam dunks on the show, I think. 100%. Paul? Yeah. Yeah, I wish that uh, Zapparoni would have been riding on like a Segway that Younger <laughs> created in 1957. Well, I wish he was at least riding on one of his like weird automata. That would have been, but but, the, but that's the whole thing is that he doesn't even like them. He doesn't use them. He doesn't have any of them in his house. That's is, true, and I like that detail. Like, which yeah. which is the same way all of these. Which actually makes sense. It's like uh, it's like Mark Zuckerberg doesn't have social media and like doesn't. Oh, and a webcam. <laughs> exactly. Right. None for me, please. Same thing. Because he knows. Because they know it's evil yeah. and corrupting. <laughs> yeah. 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 They've seen the sausage being made. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, a lot of people's data. They made the sausage. <laughs> yeah. 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 All right. Our boy Richard. This one's another easy slam dunk for me. Oh, yeah? Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff. Yeah. Hufflepuff, uh, 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 whack, whack, wax it, or waning Hufflepuff waxing Gryffindor. Okay, uh, yeah, I actually, I'll, I'll buy that. Yeah, I'm gonna take it back. I think he's a Sagittarius. <laughs> I mean, you would be right up Younger's alley with the astrology bullshit. True. That's, a, that's another thing that he loves. That weird comes mi- up, uh, often mysticism up. shit. Yeah, yeah. Which is yeah, also I'm gonna go with Hufflepuff. I think he wants to suck Zapperoni's pepperoni, <laughs> and he just. Which well, also not to say that that's a Hufflepuff tray. I'm just saying he just like bows down to the old yeah. Man. I just think he's loyal to his wife. Well, that's true too. Yeah, to deeply nice. Uh, well, uh, and the memory of horses. A, a quick uh, uh, shout out if you want to read about how horoscopes are secretly fascist and how younger is a fascist for liking them shout outs to uh, adorno's the stars down to earth which is an excellent text uh, analyzing the the sort of socio history of of uh, uh, the zodiac and how uh, it attracts a fascist personality wow sure that's interesting sorry to piss off some of our listeners i'm sure you're not fascists i'm just saying it's an interesting book the Zodiac right. is interesting. <laughs> the Zodiac, Zodiac killer. 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 Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Think Recent, about that. Yes. Re- recently found. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Ted Cruz. Patreon only content. Okay, so let's oh, give yeah. let's give this book a friggin' score. And you you may you may have noticed people just to preface that uh, uh, Paul has been ominously silent much of this episode so far. If you want to hear Paul, un- first. if you want to hear Paul unleashed on this book, that's Patreon only for as little as two bones a month. <laughs> you know the drill. Yeah, Paul's about to go ham. He's about to bird dog this shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I'll go first. I'm happy to go yeah. first on this one. Uh, I liked it. I uh, I think there's I think there is a shit ton more to talk about, which Paul will be unhappy to hear. Um, yes. And you know uh, I I liked it, but I would not recommend it if that makes sense. Uh, it's not a book that I think most people will pick up and be like, ah, oh, weird sci-fi, uh, uh, you know, predicting Elon Musk automata and whatever. And then they're, they're going to read it and be like, it's not that at all. I, I, I think, I don't know what score Paul is going to give this book, but my guess is that it's going to be much, much closer to the average opinion of, 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 of a reasonable person who picks this book up to read it um, than mine is going to be. I like Junger. I think he's an, uh, an interesting figure. And I guess I would say if you let the book work on its own terms, it's 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 a much more enjoyable read than thinking it's going to be some like action packed sci fi, you know, thriller or whatever, um, which it's not. So I'm going to say three point five three. Wow. Okay. So Paul, yeah, I mean, by tradition, Paul has to go next because the the because Matt picked, he's the last. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we didn't do the Scrabble word. We didn't do the Scrabble word. Oh shit! I have one. Oh, thank you for reminding me. Me too. All right. So uh, yeah, first. Let's yeah. Let's just do that now. Let's just get that out of the way. So uh, okay. This is a, a, another segment that we intermittently decide to do. And um, if we remember, if we remember, and it's a, a, a word that we found in the book that we either didn't know or would make a good Scrabble word or that we thought was just sort of kind of cool. Uh, and mine for this book is amortized, which is on page 77, A-M-O-R-T-I-Z-E-D, which apparently means gradually write off the initial cost of an asset over a period or to reduce or pay off a debt with regular payments. You've never had, you've you've amortized things for sure. Everyone, I think we all have. Yes, in, yeah. Within a sort of debt structure, yeah. Not not my student loan debt. Uh, sp- patreoncom slash spinecrackers, two bones a month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, mine too. Give me like two hundred bones a month, actually, please. Yeah, exactly. <coughs> Matt, do you want to go? I got one lined up. Do it. Uh, mine is. Agog, A G O G. I think it's a good Scrabble word if you have two G's and great an word, A. Great word. Mm-hmm. Nice. Because you might, might want to get rid of those. Uh, <laughs> it means very eager or curious to hear or, or see something. Like you're all very agog to know my score. Oh, so, true. Fucking true, beautiful, true. dude. <laughs> <laughs> Mine was. Uh, he was going off about plants and stuff because we, you know. The book's called The Glass Bees. We didn't say it really, I feel like, but there's bees that are made of glass in the book. Uh, uh, there are pa- some of Zabroni's machines. Patreon-only content. <laughs> uh, my word was calyx, which I believe is also a pretty decent Scrabble word. C-A-L-Y-X. Um, oh, my God. Pop-up ads on the Merriam-Webster fucking site. No. Boo, Merriam-Webster. Sponsor us. Uh, yeah, the usually green outer whorl of a flower consisting of separate or fused petals and or a cup-like division of the renal pelvis. <laughs> I, love a good, I love a good renal pelvis. Collective name yeah. of, for several cup-like, cup-like structures in animal anatomy. Um, yeah. Oh, yes. All right, well, Paul, score time. So yeah, yeah, I didn't like Youngswell, and I th- I was giving this book a chance. When when I talked to Matt about it the other day in person, I was like, you know what, Matt, I don't hate it. But then something shifted, and I was like, <laughs> I'm giving into my hatred. I Paul's can't pretend star. to like it. And 
it really doesn't come down to the ideas for me. It's just like I can't I can't get around the style that he writes in. I just can't fucking do it. It, it it's so boring to me. It's like written by a uh like an accountant that just decided to write a philosophy science fiction book. Not to say that accountants are boring. I know a couple that are really cool. But you know, you understand what I mean. It's just like th- there's no narrative that is gripping at all though by the way he writes it's just like flat line to me and he, even the slight inter- slightly interesting moments are just so overshadowed by the general style of writing and i i think i just i really really hold value to style and a writing style that you know grips my attention that is enjoyable to read and it's like it, it, it just fell so flat for me my favorite uh, review on Goodreads was someone gave it one star and just wrote, um, boring as shit. <laughs> um, that is precise. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I don't know. Uh, the ideas are there. I want to talk, I do want to talk about some of the ideas because I think that a lot of them translate to like a lot of science fiction even now. But it's like, if you have ideas, I want it to be presented to me as a reader in an enjoyable way. Maybe I'm a simpleton, but I just like, I can't get beyond behind it because it's just like, Ugh. it's just boring journal writing to me. Okay. So, oh, a score. Uh, two. <laughs> hate it. Hate it. 2.0. 2.0 is not hate. 2.0 is like, yeah, didn't love it. It's like, it's like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. All right, one point nine. <laughs> there you go. Okay. There you go. You broke the barrier. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I uh. I also enjoyed reading the book. Um. I feel like there was again just a lot. Um. There's just a lot of uh, perception <laughs> in the trajectory of, I guess, certain. Trends that I always appreciate, especially in things that are sort of nominally science fiction. Uh, like Gabe said, Jünger is 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 just kind of a fascinating figure, uh, and uh, I found uh, the digressions enjoyable. I actually, I th- I, th- I think they do also just serve a uh, a sort of purpose, narrativizing like thoughts as they. I I don't think it's as haphazard. As all that, um, it's definitely more about a man's interior, though, right? Than like anything going on, really. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. I'm gonna give it a three point five. Even. Nice, dead on. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I guess I liked it the most, which is surprising to me. So, uh, but I'm generous. You all know me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You just love books, dude. Ah, I love books. I love reading them. I love the cool, <laughs> cool ideas, and I uh, love talking about them. Which we're going to do more. Ideas. Which we're going to do more on the uh, full version of this episode with episode, which you can access at Patreon. Episode, which you can access at patreoncom slash for as little as two bones a month. And uh, as always, there's a lot more to talk about, and we're going to do that right now. Thank you for listening. YouTube.com slash Minecrackers, Instagram. Oh, shout out. We should have done this at the beginning. Maybe we can uh, edit this if we can. But shout outs to Paul for our new fucking logo, which slaps. Oh, oh yeah. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> thank you. You'll have, you it. all have noticed the glow. Go up. look at it. Yeah. The, the Spinecrackers. Spinecrackers 2.0. 2.0 glow up. All right, bye. Yep. Bye. Uh, bye. <laughs>